Here's Chavinko. Lovely ball through towards Altidore. Altidore! Toronto FC's big acquisitions combine to tie the game. Josie Altidore. The Two Solid Dude Soccer Podcast with Dwayne Rollins and Kevin Laramie. The award-winning soccer podcast that covers every single aspect of Canadian soccer. And now, without further ado, here's Dwayne Rollins. Welcome to the Two Salt Tooths Podcast. I'm Dwayne Rollins, as always, here in Fake Spring, Toronto. Kevin Laramay joins us in Montreal. Fake, Fake spring, spring as well. <laughs> yeah. I, I like that term. I read that uh, in one of the Toronto blogs. I think it was TO blog or whatever. Anyway, they they coined it Fake Spring because uh, it, it's not really warm enough to be spring, but everyone's still acting like it's spring <laughs> because they're just ready to move on. Like patios are open. People are shivering out there. It's Yeah. <laughs> I open my curtains, I look outside, it looks beautiful, it's sunny and everything. Then you look at the actual temperature, and that's where the fake spring comes into play. Oh, and people in the city are going to be really angry today, uh, not to get too bogged down into the matter here, but uh, the TTC has, has had its weekly shutdown, um, and I, I'm being a bit facetious when I say that, because the TTC daily. is a look, It's well, yeah, it's a daily shutdown. Uh, at 7.30 in the morning, it sh- the college station shut down, so the entire Young Line south of Bloor, if you've been in Toronto, you know how wow. busy that is, shut down from 7.30 to 9.30 today. So the lineups to get on the shuttle bus in the freezing cold fake spring weather were two miles deep and people were just very angry. So anyway, that's a little too much Toronto talk, but uh, there you go. Um, <laughs> I wish I was working in a travel agency because I was making a lot of money right now. Yeah, just send me to Bermuda. Just send me to Costa Bermuda. Rica at least. Yeah, somewhere like on Costa Rica. Speaking of, uh, we're going to talk about Montreal CCL game in detail uh, in the middle segment today. We're going to ke- talk to Kevin about the excitement in Montreal, about what needs to happen, about what would happen if they make a final, about all sorts of good things to do with the CCL. Um, you know, is it history if they make it? I don't know. You can make an argument. History, the first Canadian team to make the final for sure. Uh, be the second MLS team but to make the final in the CCL as opposed to the CCC, which is what it was before. But at any rate, we digress. Uh, before that, we have a really good guest, Will Parchman, who is the senior writer for Talk, Top Drawer Soccer, a development site, and the editor of the 91st Minute blog there. Uh, he talked to us earlier today uh, about uh, USL, MLS partnerships, about academies, about the state of the three Canadian academies about uh, just in general kind of development philosophies. And then we wrapped it up with a little bit of a question about Michael Bradley because uh, he, you know, he's a U.S. Uh, men's national team observer as well. And uh, Bradley has some relations, of course, to TFC up here. So we talked to him. Apparently. Yeah, <laughs> a few. All right, uh, we'll wrap it up with a Canadian review at the end. Before that, Kevin, how are things going out your way? Things are looking pretty good. There's a certain buzz, but I think there's more of a cautious optimism going on today before the CCL game. People are exciting, but people still remember 2009 in Santos Laguna. So it, it seems like they're waiting for the result to truly get excited tonight. Yeah, there's a song that gets sung sometimes in, in BMO Field about that. Something uh, about 4-1 and something up. I 4-1 and you. Oh, I can't say that. It's a, yeah, it's a family yeah. show. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, tonight, we're ex- those demons will be exercised. Okay, fair enough. Let's take a quick break. We'll bring Will back on, uh, have a conversation about development, then we'll uh, we'll break the CCL down after that.
and welcome back to the Two Solitudes. Dwayne Rollins here. Will Parchman joins us from Top Drawer Soccer. He's a senior writer there, the editor of the 91st Minute blog. Will, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on, gents. Well, I wanted to have you on because Kevin and I, we, we launched a show called USL Radio recently. Uh, there's a nice little plug there, but uh, we talk a lot about development issues and you're, you're a good guy to talk about that. Let's start there and talk about the state of the USL MLS partnership a couple years in now. We're seeing a lot of these two teams evolve. Just in your, from your perspective, how do you see that relationship right now? Do you think it is working towards something that's going to be the full benefit to the development system for MLS and, and uh, U.S. and Canadian soccer? Yeah, I think so. I think um, I've always been pretty bullish on kind of that idea of having um, it, I mean, you can almost view it as an upgraded reserve league. Um, obviously, the reserve league's kaput now, but um, the USL has kind of replaced it in a bigger, more substantive way, I think, just because teams now have um, development arms where they can get these kids playing time. I mean, MLS, for whatever reason, has always been really averse to younger kids and giving these kids playing time, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense because, I mean, in my opinion, in my opinion, the, the league's whole niche right now should be um, producing young kids. So almost like a, a Netherlands. I mean, I, I know they want to be a big-time player um, in international soccer, and that and that's fine. But um, I, I think for right now, they need to kind of focus a little bit more on producing next-level stars. And I think USL is, is a great way to do that just because, you know, look, look at Seattle, for instance. They have... Um, guys like Darwin Jones and Christian Roldan, um, who they can kind of, they know that they're not going to get uh, substantive first team minutes just because they're, they're, they're such an old team. So they can kind of shuttle them off to S2 um, where they get, you know, solid playing time. They're, they're playing against a good USL team. So I, I think it's growing. I mean, as in a lot of things, the Galaxy kind of pioneered a solid way forward and kind of how to do it. Um, but I think it's it's a vital component um, as we go forward because really, if you look at at the development gap between the ages of eighteen and twenty two, that's what we're talking about. Where there's there, there wasn't a whole lot of infrastructure for for players, and I think USL Pro addresses that. I'm sorry, USL now it, it addresses that to where um, when the kids get done with the development academy at the age of eighteen. To when they get substantive playing time in MLS, which could be, you know, 23, 24, there wasn't a whole lot of infrastructure there. So USL is, is doing a good job to sort of bring us up to speed. It still has as a ways to go, um, just in terms of the the level of play and um, you know the travel and in some instances is, is kind of ridiculous, but um, it, it's getting there, and I think it's it's a it's a positive thing, and it's it's moving in the right direction. I guess one of the big philosophical differences you might see between the different uh, MLS two teams is, is some teams might view it as an extension of their of the first team, like a reserve side, and other teams like Montreal, for instance, might view it as sort of the top of their academy side. Which of those philosophies do you feel is the best way moving forward for for these two teams? Well, there, there's certainly value in both, but I think ultimately for it to be utilized the way I think it should be utilized, it, it kind of has to be viewed as a first-team extension, as, as sort of a, um, this is the way we play, uh, This is these are our formations, these are our, our coaching styles, and we're trying to get you up to speed on a pro level. And I think, in my opinion, after, you, after your 18th birthday, after your 
you know, your U18 season at the development academy level ends, you're a professional player. And so you need to be doing everything possible to gear up for professional soccer. That's usually, globally, that's usually about the age that you start getting um, serious senior team call-ups. Um, whether you're looking at a young league like the Netherlands or, or an older league like the Premier League, it's, it's you know, once you get around that, that 18, 19-year-old uh, level, you, you know, first team minutes are, are kind of begin to be on the table. So, um, you know, you, you mentioned Montreal. They, they do a good job. I mean, it's a very young academy, but they do a good job um, shuttling these guys through through the U18 ranks. But um, I'm not sold on how long they wait uh, to give these guys homegrown contracts because um, first it was the reserve team. Now it's uh, their USL team where they kind of um, push them off till they're 20, 21, 22, and then sign them these homegrown deals. Um, I, I think they, they could probably stand to go a little bit earlier. Um, and I think if you're not um, inculcating these, these USL teams with the way that you want to play on the senior team level, you're doing yourself a disservice. You mentioned the age of players and how basically MLS is old compared to other league because we we rarely see players like 22, 23 actually thrive in a league. It's sometimes even older. Do you think there's still a league or a step missing in that famous development pyramid between the top tier like the MLS club, then you got the NSL, USL, but in the same club like the MLS, there's then the USL, there's some... It's like missing one tier. Do you think it's going to be needed eventually to have a complete development pyramid? Well, as I mentioned, I think the 18 to 22 age range is probably the most glaring miss in the pyramid. I think we didn't really have, before USL, we didn't really have that sort of linked to MLS in any real way. And I think MLS added, I want to say, six or seven USL teams just in the last offseason. Um, so they're kind of getting online with that. I think... The next great uh, frontier for some of these teams is going to be the sub U12 level, um, and I know some people get a little antsy when we start talking about like seven, eight, nine-year-old kids, um, but you ha you kind of have to look there next. And and some teams are, you know, the Red Bulls have a, a pre-academy. Uh, NYCFC has started talking about um, you know sanctioning this this league. Where um, you know you've got U7 to U10, I think is what it is. Where all basically all of these players are going to be in NYCFC's system early. Um, now, obviously, when we're talking about nine-year-olds, we're not talking about um, specific skills. We're talking about just bringing them along with high-level games, um, getting them meaningful games at a very young age, um, and that's something MLS doesn't do very well. And honestly, it's something that. Uh, the U.S. national team pool um, doesn't do very well either. They only just added a U14 division um, not too long ago. Um, and, you know, U12 is starting to come online. I think they're adding a U13 soon. So um, I, I just think that that younger age, it needs to be there. I, I remember talking to Paul Breitbart, um, who is a longtime German national team player. He now works uh, with Bayern Munich in, the, in their front office. And he was saying that in the United States, there just isn't that young infrastructure. And that's the difference because they, they allocate all of their best coaches to the youngest players. Um, and I think that's flipped for us. The U18 level tends to be um, kind of where a lot 
of the best go. So I, I, I would like to see that sort of maybe uh, bolstered a little bit in the future where teams are starting to look um, to the foundational level to start their, their development. If we're looking at the amount of team, like you said, you mentioned seven new USL team just with uh, MLS affiliation appeared this year. Uh, do you think that's what necessary to bring the level of international play of both Canada and the United States to have more of those second, third tier league team playing to get more of those players, professionals, players actually on the field to eventually get more call-ups? I mean, you would certainly hope. I mean, I, I think at the end of the day, it's going to be down to the first team coaches. I mean, it's you, you know, you, you can be a star in USL all you want, but if if that's not leading you to first team minutes, then it's not doing its job. And time will tell. I mean, who knows? You know, whether coaches take this seriously and and credit USL form and, and say, well, I'm you know, I'm, I'm going to give you a shot because you've looked really good in this in this league. Some coaches may not. Um, you know, coaches like, um, you know, Frank Gallup and, um, and Kloppis and, and, and some of these guys who have been historically averse to giving, um, you know, giving younger guys playing time, they may not change at all. And they, and they may just use it as a, you know, as a, basically a holding ground for players who, uh, they're not interested in playing in the first place. Um, but I mean, I hope that's not the case. Uh, so I, I think the, the proof will be in how many, of these guys are actually given substantive minutes because it's not enough right now, um, and and for that to change, I think some coaches, it, whether that means just a you know fresh coaching blood or um, just some of these coaches changing the way that they view development, I think uh, it it, need, it just needs to be beefed up. I mean, why why isn't Tommy Thompson playing more in San Jose? I mean, I, I don't think he's played one minute, and you know they're starting Sana Niasi outright, and you know he's a he's a proven quantity, he's a known quantity, I should. Say. Day, but he's not, you know, he's not having a particularly good season. Yeah, he hasn't had and, one in a long time. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he hasn't had one in a long time, and so, and yet here he is. And you know, Dom Kinnear is kind of rolling the dice with with the guy that he knows, and you know, kind of pushing the the youth movement to the side. And Tommy Thompson was at the U twenty Concacaf tournament and was, you know, might have been the best player of the entire tournament, and he's sitting on the bench. So um, I think a lot of that's just because he's nineteen and. You know, it's it's a scary prospect sometimes to start young kids. So that needs to change. Uh, we'll see if it does, but uh, I'm, I'm hopeful. Well, the the homegrown rule and the uh, the DP rule came in at the same time. The DP rule, of course, has become you know centerpiece to to most MLS teams' strategies right now. I'm not sure it's the same way with the the homegrown rule. Not every team treats it the same way. Just. What is your perspective on how universal the acceptance of the importance of homegrown players and, and developing your own players is across MLS right now? Yeah, I think, I, I mean, certainly it's, it's gathered steam. Um, you know, you, you look, I, I did a, a study last summer on kind of how particular teams have used the homegrown tag. And, um, you know, I, there's a split, you know, in, in philosophy as there will be in, in pretty much any um pretty much any rule like that but I, I do think the teams you know now that San Jose has, has signed one everybody's signed at least one homegrown um, FC Dallas has really kind of peppered that rule and they've I think they've signed I want to say 12 or 13 homegrowns um, the the difference that that you're seeing now is is teams going quantity over quality or vice versa um, you know you look at teams like the Red Bulls um, I mentioned FC Dallas those two in particular have signed a ton of homegrowns, and none of them 
have had particular success. Um, I mean, FC Dallas just signed Coy Craft, um, Alejandro Zadejas, who's another promising prospect. Um, and the Red Bulls have signed, you know, a myriad. You can go back, uh, you know, five or six years to see all the guys have signed, but none of them have really hit. And then you've got, um, you know, clubs that maybe have only signed two or three. Like, I mean, look at the the Sounders. They've only signed, I think, three in their history. One of them was DeAndre Yedlin, who's now in the Premier League. So um, it, it's it's a philosophy thing, but I think all, all clubs at the very least see the value of it. Um, it's just a matter, as we talked about, you know, teams have started talking about this quote-unquote vertical integration where, um, you know, these guys actually get playing time after they, you know, after they, they commit their home growth features. So I think, um, you know, you, you, you can look at the clubs that, that aren't using it. And I think those were probably the ones that I would say, um, are, are some of my least favorite to watch. I mean, there's a correlation there. I mean, uh, you know, guys like Dom Kinnear who, who haven't really valued, uh, youth, uh, they play sort of a more direct style guys like um, you know, Yallop and, and Kloppis, as I mentioned before, that, that play a little bit more of a direct style, not as willing to maybe roll the dice. And I think that that sort of bleeds out into their, their homegrown buying policy. So, um, but at the very least, I think, you know, clubs are beginning to see that, you know, they, they need to use the, the tag. Uh, well, I know you cover the U.S. scene a little, you know, pretty much primarily, but I did want to get your perspective on the three uh, MLS Canadian academies. Well, what, what do you think they're doing? Do you like what they're doing up here? I will say that my favorite of the three—I don't know if this will this will get me in your your bad graces—but I would say my favorite of the three is, is Vancouver's. Um, they they do a great job uh, with their residency. There's, I think there's only six residency academies in MLS right now. Um, and, and I, in my opinion, Vancouver's is the best. Um, they do a really good job sort of pulling from, from the region. Um, I, I think they get, I, I want to say they get more from Alberta than anybody else in MLS. I could be wrong on that, but I'm pretty sure that that's right. Um, and they, they just, they seem to have a really good philosophy. Um, Robinson does a good job, um, sort of integrating what they do in the academy level with what they do in the pro level. Um, but I'll tell you, Montreal, I mean, they've come out of nowhere. Uh, they obviously went in the, to the Final Four um, of the Development Academy last year uh, at the U18 level. Um, and some of those players off that U18 team have, are now in the USL ranks. I'm, I mean, I, I think the most impressive to me is Fabio Morelli, mm-hmm. um, who is just a fantastic talent. Um, he's a Swiss yep. um, international. But I, I want to say he's – last I heard he was seeking dual national – um, status, so he, he may be. He might be close too because he's been with the uh, with the Montreal Academy since 2011. So only one sure. year from now is going to be eligible to get uh, Canadian FIFA papers. Sure, and um, from what I hear, he's interested in doing that, and, and that would be a, a a pretty good get for the Canadian national team because he's he's a real talent. So I, I think Montreal will be excited about that. And and for for me, Toronto, the Toronto Academy is a bit of a mystery. I mean, they don't. Um, they don't compete in the development academy, so they're you know they're not sort of throwing their weight up against the rest of the of, of MLS in that capacity. But um, you know certainly I've, I've watched the USL game of theirs, and, and they do have a lot. Of time. I watched a little bit of the, the the game they played with the Red Bulls, where the Red Bulls I think had loaned like eleven of their senior team guys to the um, to the USL team, which was made it a little bit interesting. But um, but yeah, I mean I, I think. The, one of, for me, one of the most encouraging things of, about, about the Canadian system is they're not as tethered to 
college as the American system is, um, which sounds weird to say, but um, they're they're just not as reliant on, you know, some of these kids don't mind, for instance, going pro at 18. Um, and it's, I feel like it's a little bit easier to do that in Canada where some of these guys are just, you know, they've been in residency for a little while and they're 17, 18, and they're just chomping at the bit to be pros. Where in America, we sort of have this fight for kids to, to, to stay in the system and not go to college. Um, and not that college is bad necessarily, but when you're 18, you need to be in a professional environment every day. I mean, that's kind of the difference. So I think um, from that aspect, Canada is doing well to kind of bring, you know, you look at kids like Marco Bustos, um, you know, Keon's Frazy, also in Vancouver, they, you know, they, they've been in professional environments for a really long time. And I think that's a good thing um, for Canada's future. I think one of the things people don't realize uh, is that the Canadian university system allows f- with some, some provisions, but does does allow former pros to come back in, which I think kind of helps that decision along. Sure. At any rate, um, I did want to move one last question. I, I know you have some opinions on how uh, uh, Mr. Klinsman is using uh, uh, Bradley in, in the U.S. national team and how that relates to his play in Toronto. Do you, do you think that uh, – that Michael Bradley knows what ends up in terms of where he's supposed to be playing in any given week right now? I do. Um, and for the record, I don't think Vanny is using him right either. I think Vanny sees him more as the Bradley of three or four years ago where he's an out-and-out six, where he's a holding midfielder, and that's sort of his best role. Um, and Klinsman sees him, which is even crazier, he sees him as a 10, which is nonsense. Um, and he plays him, you know, tries to play him anyway, really, really high, uh, tucked underneath the strikers. And um, I think Bradley knows. I mean, I, Vanny had um, – I shared a quote on Twitter yesterday where Vanny from last October where he was saying that, you know, Bradley, you know, I'm with him every day and, you know, we talk. And um, he kind of knows and he has some difference in opinion in the way Klinsman uses him and um, and all that. and. Uh, certainly, I think he knows. You know, when he goes to the national team, he's going to kind of have to be a um, the nail poking out of the grain a little bit, just because it's not he's not a ten. He's not. In fact, he's not even close. I think ideally he's somewhere between that 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 holding role and and a sort of a box to box guy. I don't think he's either. Um, and and people have talked about this before. He's so indefinable just in his best role, and so he sort of gives coaches headaches. The problem is when you're a guy like Klinsman. And you 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 give him a defined role, and you don't allow him that ability to sort of be um, a couple things at once. And I think on on the club level, my hope is that Vanny um, allows him to stray a little bit, um, allows him to be a little bit less tethered. The problem with that, of course, is that you need um, more of a, a holding midfielder who who really won't get you know get forward. And you know that that could be Sheru. He could develop into that in the long run, but. Um, I mean, we'll see. I think Klinsman is 100% wrong um, in the way that he views Bradley, um, and he's not backing down from it, which is the the frustrating thing. So, I mean, we'll see what that does to his game, but I, I don't think he's particularly happy about it. If I'm um, if I'm kind of trying to guess how he feels at the national team level, uh, is for all the problems the Canadian national team has, the one area I would not trade with the U.S. as your manager, and I'll leave it at that. Um, <laughs> Well, why don't you tell the listeners how they can uh, read your work? 
Yeah, you can uh, you can find me at topdoorsoccer.com, and that'll um, kind of redirect you to the 91st minute where we do a lot of our more fun stuff, um, just kind of on MLS and international soccer and, and all that good stuff, and uh, on Twitter at, uh, at Will Parchman. All right. Thanks, Will, for joining us today. Uh, Will Parchman, Top Door Soccer. Thanks again. Cheers. And welcome back. Uh, thanks to Will. I thought that was an interesting conversation. It kind of would have fit in USL radio as well, but I thought that uh, we brought enough MLS in there to make it relevant for here. Uh, maybe we'll, uh, we'll keep an eye on the development stuff as the year goes goes on. I think it's an interesting thing to watch. I do think that um, to touch on something about that, that it's interesting and he nailed it, how the three Canadian teams aren't tied into the NCAA system in the same way. And I've, I've maintained for a long time that that's a true advantage for the three Canadian teams. No, I agree with you. And we talked about that aspect a lot how maybe being tied to school forces a kid to not really make that choice to go all in with his professional career where if you really know and that's the only thing you really want to do why not have the opportunity to do this at a at age 18 and be able to act and don't just think as a professional but to actually act like a pro live like a pro eat like a pro train like a pro and eventually that'll make you a better pro right yeah absolutely and Look, the uh, the advantage is to get into the professional environment earlier. And in the U.S., if you go fully in pro, you're going to lose your NCAA eligibility. And there's a lot of social and, social and cultural sort of uh, controls and restraints that prevent kids from doing that. And a lot of the MLS teams just don't buy into it. They don't want to jeopardize their ability to attract young talent into their system. Um, by sort of having a philosophy to force them to go pro young. So I think that the NCAA system sort of benefits from that. Now they, uh, by doing certain things, and they're awfully flexible and they're awfully great, can maintain the, those homegrown rights, which just sort of makes the system go round and round. But I do believe that um, that now with the USL teams there, that uh, you'll see more and more uh, young pros in the States start to, to forego the NCAA, realizing that you can't be a true prospect at 22. And this is a thing that I think a lot of people miss out on. There's like, obviously, you know, Wondolowski's of the world out there that develop late, but they're, they're one in a million, whereas opposed to most guys that are scoring big goals in big leagues, uh, you know, they're, they've been pros since they're 17, 18. So that's, that's the norm. And um, I think that's the model that most of the, the three Canadian teams are, are looking at uh, the other thing Will said, and you know we belabored this, and he he you know credited Vancouver, and a lot of people probably were giggling when they heard that, knowing I was doing the interview. But uh, <laughs> him saying that doesn't discount my main point and my main contention with Vancouver and with with all of the the other two as well. Is that as long it doesn't matter how good your academy is, if the bridge to the first team isn't there, then it's meaningless. And that's that's what my position is. It has nothing to do with the, the quality of the kids that are in the academy. Yeah, you're producing a lot of uh, national junior team players, national youth team players. You're not necessarily producing MLS players unless you give them a chance to play. So time will tell. Time will tell if that is the case. Let's move on, Kevin. Um, you have a game this week. 
the Montreal impact that is. Not you personally. I don't know. You have, do you have a game personally this week, Kevin? Uh, no, I don't. But I Montreal impact do have a game tonight. And uh, one game that be, can be considered probably the most historical game in the history of the club, Dwayne. It is history. That's a word that's being used a lot in the marketing of this. Of course, we're talking about the CCL. Uh, Montreal is up 2-0 in that game, of course. Didn't allow the road goal, which was important. Um, what is the excitement level uh, today? The, the Habs have sort of solidified their, their playoff position, so there's really no excuse uh, to to be focusing on anything other than the impact in Montreal, I would think. Well, Max Pacioretty did get injured in the weekend, but if outside of that, outside of those open lines that are talking about Pacioretty, the city's kind of talking about the impact today. There's kind of a cautious optimism. There, people want to get excited. They might be afraid to get their hopes broken tonight. But right now, there's a, a that famous buzz is there. I can feel it. Maybe it's me living in my soccer bubble. But I do feel a certain buzz concerning the game tonight. And if the result goes Montreal's way, there's many different scenarios that will make Montreal go through. But I believe the city would repay Montreal by making it there to maybe filling the stadium to maybe up to 50,000 if it's the game's ever at the Big O. Yeah, the Big O, the Big o hasn't been used this much in, in 10 years that it has wow. been this month. I know, eh? The last, <laughs> got- like, last two months has been four, three, four impact games, practices of the impact, baseball games on top of it. Yeah, the Big O's been uh, yeah, overused. You're going to party like it's 1979. <laughs> um. It, it's good to hear that there is a little bit of excitement there, and and, and actually watched the uh, the Habs game on the weekend, which was really odd of me. So I saw that injury, and it does look like he maybe uh, maybe had his bell rung to, to use the old adage that no one likes to use anymore. But the more dangerous one there was when Carey Price got hit, and that one yeah. got escaped. So um, anyway, uh, that's sad. I mean, we joke, but Montreal is a city that's it's kind of has a one track mind when it comes to this time of year. But we're in that weird kind of it's almost perfect timing for the impact in that. The Habs are going to finish first or second in the conference, probably second. They're not going to uh, really – they're not battling for anything right now. They're just trying to stay healthy. So that really does matter. So they have – if the Impact win this game, then – There's like then, a two weeks of pre, pre-playoffs pre in the city that the Impact can use and hype their potential appearance in the final of the CONCACAF. Now, the hope is you're not playing, you know, game seven against the Bruins or something that night. And yeah, in which exactly. case there might be there'd be 12 people <laughs> at, the, at the game. But it'll ask, um, what is the key to winning down there? Now, we, we were joking in the in the opening segment about the four one and the way that uh, the team capitulated to Santos Laguna back in the day. And that's not an impact issue. That's not something special. The impact we we watched how Salt Lake had the, the lead at home and collapsed under the pressure of that game when the, the Mexican team got for, got moving forward in the, the final couple years late, a couple years ago. We saw how TFC collapsed in the second leg against Santos Laguna. We've seen it time and time again that those MLS teams, Salt Lake, or sorry, uh, Kansas City last year, got absolutely killed in their quarterfinal stage. Uh, lots of times, these MLS teams, when they get down there, they're mentally fragile and they just get railroaded once a team starts moving. And that would be my worry uh, for the impact heading into this leg. The one thing that encourages me is when I look at Alahuelense itself. When you compare that club to the club of Santos Aguna or Pachuca or even a Monterrey that dominated the CCL a couple of years ago, 
Uh, Alavalense is not a club that's having the greatest of season. They had their first two victories of the year in their spring season after they lost their first game to Montreal. And they lost another game since then. Yes, they played their B squad on Saturday, having no starter that started last Saturday and they actually started against the Impact or their victories in the league. That being said, the level of Alavalense, I don't think is at... The same as either a Pachuca that Montreal was able to win. Yes, they got lucky, but still, they made they, they did it. The level of Alawente is a little below. And I believe that the circumstances surrounding everything, the fact that Alawente got caught 2 nothing in Montreal, they were not expecting the level of play Montreal did have because there's a lack of information they do have. They just learned yesterday in the newspaper, and that's how the actual team learned of Cameron Porter's injury, and that happened a month ago, Dwayne. So, so that tells me a lot about how maybe they came into this competition with the lack of information about the other club, and that can really come and haunt you, and that happened in Montreal. And I think they can use that to get the result they need. And you know what? A 2-1 loss, and they still make it through. Yeah, that's true. Do you think, though, and we'll start there, do you think that the Impact need to score on this leg to win? Yes, I do. I, I do... For their own personal confidence, for the defense itself to give them a bigger, uh, bigger uh, lead to protect. Two is not too bad, but if it just gets scored two, it's all equal again. So you need to score that goal to make him score four goals, and then you're in the driver's seat. Yeah, well, you know, the other side of that is that you go down there and allow in the first 20 minutes or something, and suddenly your two-goal lead is really just... Suddenly the crowd gets in the game. Yeah. It becomes an hostile environment. Crowds are it can turn on a game like we're not used to here. They can actually intimidate a team. And if you're not used to those environment and those intimidation tactics by a crowd, it can actually make you freeze on the pitch and make you... Uh, think for a second too much or maybe that fraction of a second too much where you'll just lose that duel. You'll be that one step late on that free ball. So it can have an impact on the game. The one thing that encourages me, though, is the presence of a player like Nacho Piatti who played and thrived in those conditions before. And don't forget, his club won the Copa Libertadores last year and they made their way to the uh, uh, FIFA Club World Cup. So who knows? Maybe it's going to be twice in a row for the clubs that has Nacho Piatti in the ranks. <laughs> He's the key then. Um, all right. Uh, it's one player, though. I guess my question would be not necessarily the stars of the impact or the stars of any MLS team. It would be how the plumbers on those MLS teams handle those environments. Is there anything in the North American soccer pyramid that gets these guys up to where they are that would ever prepare them for something like this? No, you're right. Maybe half the team of Montreal did have some experience, but players that didn't have experience, like Justin Mapp, who thrived in the CCL before where he's not playing, he's injured. So you're right about that. But players like Ajero, players like did have some CCL experience in the in years prior, so it's going to be interesting to see. But players like Donadell, real quicker, that have international experience, played abroad in Italy, played in Europe, they've seen those type of conditions before. So I think it's like 50-50. Half the team is something new for them, and half the team, they're love those conditions so hopefully they'll be able to transmit their knowledge of the those playing condition to the other teammates so they don't freeze up on the pitch what do you think that the change in directions a little bit in terms of the clubs obviously you want to win this now that you're here i no one doubts that but in terms of the overall philosophy of the club do you think that they view the this game and the potential of two more games as almost more important than the mls season or 
an extension of the MLS season or do you think that deep down in, in the upper levels there that there's an understanding that this is a distraction within the MLS season and something that would be fun but not necessarily should be the be-all, end-all? Well, if it would have been in the United States, I would agree with you, Dwayne. But for some reason, the media and the supporters have got behind that competition in Canada and have hyped it a lot. So you saw that happening in Toronto and we saw it in Montreal in 2009. And I think because we had that experience in 2009 where then it was even more spectacular, even more grandiose because we're playing in a second-tier league and we made our way to the continent championship. It was something special. And I believe that aura of the competition has been alive since then. And it seems like it has something special. Not because it is special in a way, but because the media treats it as special, the fans treat it as special. So because they treat it special, it makes it special, and the club doesn't really have a chance that to go for it. I don't think the club should have, in the beginning of their season or beginning of the tournament, the goal to win it. It's like the FA Cup. But if you're in the quarterfinals, you make it there, then why not go for it? I don't think... Do you think that it will add excitement to the um, the Voyagers Cup to the uh, Amway Canadian Championship this year as well? It starts a, a month yesterday, by the way. Yeah. Uh, maybe. Maybe it will be, but uh, I don't know. The fact that it's more time between the end of the Canadian Championship and their actual presence in the CCL next year, uh, actually two years from now, I, I think it's put some less... Uh, it's not less interesting, but I think it's less meaningful this year, that Voyager's Cup, a little bit. Yeah, well, yeah, I, I don't know if everyone in Montreal is aware of that, uh, or even in Toronto, or aware that the Whitecaps have already uh, qualified for this year's Champions League. It's like, it's like people want to forget about it. Well, we're not used to associating Whitecaps and Champions League anyways. Yeah, well, they haven't won the season, or won the Canadian Championship yet, like but ever, at any rate. Like ever. Yeah. <laughs> even think, when it was just a trophy yeah. rewarded to people. Yeah, when it was like this Cascadia Cup, it was the impact won it every year back then. And uh, yeah, at any rate, um, I guess the, the the last question I want to ask you on this is uh, you have your ear to the ground to the supporters themselves. So you sort of touched on this, but is there an element, is there an aspect of the of the hardcore Montreal supporters there that, that views the CCL as more important than MLS? I have to say yes, even if I don't necessarily agree with them, I have to say yes. A lot of fans travel to Mexico, Dwayne. They don't even travel to freaking Boston, but they went to Mexico. They do feel that competition. They love it. They make it. It seems special. It brings something new, teams that we don't know. And when you're able to achieve success, you take it when you can. And when you can't achieve it in MLS, and you were able to achieve it more. Look at it this way. Since 2009, the Impact had more results in the Continent Champions League than they had in leagues. They won one league, yes, but basically they had more media, more revenue generated by the CONCACAF. So I guess you have to view it as a a bigger competition, even though between you and me, over the long haul, the MLS season is way harder to maybe achieve success in it. It also has a greater impact on season ticket sales and so sure. on and so forth. But, yeah. um, you know, the year that TFC, uh, you know, won its whatever fourth straight Canadian championship and uh, made the semifinals of the CCL was also corresponded with one of their worst years in MLS. And I can tell you firsthand that the, that the uh, mood in the stadium in, in September and October of that year was not even remotely reflective upon any type of excitement generated by the CCL. I guess maybe they're parallel competitions. Um, I guess Kevin will end it. You know, what's your prediction? How do you think this is going to end up? 
I think Montreal will lose the game tonight, but they will get that needed, I was going to say wanted, but that needed away goal that would propel them into the CONCACAF Champions League final. I say 2-1, Valencia tonight, and why not? Piatti with a goal tonight. I think it's going to be 3-1 in regulation, and then it's going to go to kicks. This is my prediction wow. right now. Well, what happens in the kicks, right? I, I'll hold on. Let me see if I can find something to accurately predict this. I'm looking for a coin to flip. <laughs> um, all right, I'll tell you what. I don't have a coin handy on here, but just, we'll be on the next. Just spin your diet Pepsi bottle. <laughs> on the okay, that's fine. All right, uh, we're gonna spin my diet Pepsi bottle. If the, uh, the the front faces me, the impact win. If it faces away, it's sorry, Kevin. Um, <laughs> you lost the coin flip at the end. Um, all right. Uh, I, the other thing too is, uh, I guess, is the more important game for the ability for either one of these teams to win the actual championship, the the other game in the semifinals. There's a good chance because the Everton is winning three nothing against Club America. So if Club America can can do their own remontada tonight or tomorrow night, I think they're playing. Uh, well, three goals. It's not easy to overcome on the road. So it's going to be interesting to see if. Club America can overcome the other Costa Rican team that made it to the semifinal. All right. We'll see. Uh, Kevin, you're going to have an off-the-woodworks uh, show after this. Uh, tell the tell the listeners that are in the Montreal area that listen to this this afternoon where they can find you tonight, where the party is going to be tonight in the city of Montreal. Actually, why don't you help me, listeners, decide? I can't decide between Le Treft or uh, the Frappe. So with the Ultras or with the 127 tonight? I don't know. One or the other. But uh, you can listen to After Woodworks everywhere, CSN as well, iTunes, Stitcher. There's a preview of the game that I recorded Sunday night, and uh, later tonight I will record the post game. All right, let's take a quick break. We'll come back and we'll talk about the Whitecaps and how they are apparently the greatest football club in the world right now, and uh, TFC and how they're not the greatest football club in the world right now. You're listening to the Two Solitude Soccer Podcast with Dwayne Rollins and Kevin Laramie. You like the show? You would like to become a patron of the show? Well, you can do that by going to patreon.com slash two solitudes five rings. Become a patron of the show and help support the coverage of Canadian soccer. The Canadian Review on the Two Solitudes Soccer Podcast. And welcome back to the Canadian Review. Canadian Review that this week will have at least the scores from our uh, NESL friends. Uh, FC Edmonton lost 3-1 to Jacksonville. Uh, Jacksonville's first ever game in the NESL. They had 16,000 fans out there. Uh, interesting market. Uh, makes me wonder about whether if they can sustain success like that, whether that might be one of those outside the box, out of left field markets that might get MLS consideration one day. But that's that's really early to be considering stuff like that. But you'll, uh, you'll get your Florida rivalry that way too with Jacksonville and Orlando, which probably will have a bigger rivalry than uh, Orlando could ever have with Miami. Yeah, well, and you know what, Jacksonville, Atlanta too would be uh, almost almost a better rivalry yeah. for them. I mean, if you've never people that don't know the geography of Florida real don't realize how far Jacksonville would be from Orlando, but at any rate. Yeah, it, it's it's a big distance up there in the in the. You could basically call Jacksonville almost northern Georgia more than uh, I mean southern Georgia more than Florida almost. 
Well, from a geographical standpoint, and like, well, look, we're like into like insane speculation uh, side here now after one game, you know. But, <laughs> but you know that would feed New Orleans. It would feed uh, sort of give Atlanta a rivalry. That kind of geography uh, would would be kind of ideal for MLS, I think, in a lot of ways. However, as it relates to Canada, uh, FC. <laughs> FC Edmonton, uh, not with their best performance to start the league, a 3-1 loss there. Uh, the other result, Ottawa, the Fury. Apparently, the Fury, Fury played well. I, unfortunately, I didn't get to watch either of these games. They are on TSN Go uh, here in Canada for, for those that want to watch them this year. So there is more access to these games, and we well make a more concerted effort to watch them. But when you're trying to watch you know, three MLS games and a USL game and everything else it sometimes can be a bit much. So I apologize for not getting to them this, this uh, week, but I will make a concerted effort to at least see the highlights of these games so we can give you better coverage moving forward of NASL this year. Anyway, Ottawa lost 3-1. That's what I'm trying to get to. Absolutely. Uh, in the words of Mark Dos Santos, they had a shaky start. They had anxiety at the start of the game, and that really didn't help them, and that cost them the game because after they lost, they were down 2 nothing, And they scored a goal eventually trying to get back in the game, but the damage was already done, and it was all done at the beginning of the game. Yeah, the bugger about it for, for these uh, teams is that the NASL spring season is tiny. Uh, so like you, nine, you can't, 10 games? Yeah, you can't afford any sort of slip up I mean you can and you can bury yourself with it but there is you cannot you ultimately a good fall season well overcome anything and better and is more important than a good spring season but what a good spring season can give you is an opportunity to capture one of those playoff spots sorry postseason spots the NSL will be yelling at me if I if they hear me call it playoffs I, you know, by by winning the, the spring season which is the short sprint season at any rate that's yeah. uh, that's your NASL wrap up um Look, the Vancouver Whitecaps with a very, very effective, very, very uh, impressive 2-0 win deserved, over the LA yeah. Galaxy. Uh, it's deserved, and they are having a very good, you know, after the loss to TFC, uh, which has to frustrate them greatly. Uh, they, you know, they've run off four straight wins. Not the first, best competition. No, first time in their history, Dwayne, that uh, the Whitecaps win four straight MLS game. And on top of it, almost not the last one, but three of them in dramatic fashion. Last game, last two games, clean sheet. David Ostead is really... Uh, uh, saying to the critics that he's better than they thought. So, yeah, it, it's impressive what's going on in Vancouver this season so far. Yeah, look, you can't take the points off the board. Uh, I will be critical of them because that's my inclination sometimes. But the bottom line is that they've got the wins. And like Dallas last year, who went through a great slump through the great the middle of the year, but never really fell out of playoff contention because they put the points on the board early. That's what the Whitecaps are doing right now. And when you have six teams in the playoffs in the West, having these 12 points is vital to that. Beating the Galaxy is a hugely symbolic uh, move as well. And the Galaxy were embarrassed by that. If you listen to their post-game comments, they said that they were, quote-unquote, played, played out of the park or off the park, pardon me. Uh, so obviously there, there was a lot of um, interest and a lot of praise being heaped upon the Whitecaps right now. Now, if this was happening, you know, I ask you, Vancouver listeners, that if this was happening to Toronto or Montreal, what you'd say and what you'd say is that the championship is not given out in March and April. And that is the truth. However, what like I just spoke of in the NASL, it helps to get the good start when you're talking about um, sustaining slumps in the middle of the year. The Whitecaps will have a slump like every MLS team. Well, uh, you know, they barely beat Orlando, uh, an expansion team. So that's that's not get too far ahead of ourselves, but that's not also ignore the importance of these early points. Speaking of early points that were lost, Toronto had a difficult weekend again. Yeah, it's, look, 
people are inclined to just be hysterical when it comes to TFC. Uh, you know, people outside of Toronto will suggest that TFC fans are delusional or naive or all that. I, I don't know what they're looking at because TFC fans are incredibly negative and will find fault in everything and will find no positive linings in anything. That's the TFC. That's the Toronto sports experience. <laughs> that's the TFC after, way. You know, it's the Toronto sports experience. Like, there, there is no... There's no middle ground. There's no nuance in thought anymore. TFC was horrific at the back. Um, Cravel, in particular, Warren Cravel, the uh, right back who uh, is replacing an injured Mark Bloom. At least we hope he's replacing an injured Mark Bloom because if he's just replacing Mark Bloom right now, then I'm going to go down to Beaman Field and strangle someone because <laughs> Warren Cravel is not even MLS quality right now. He was, in my mind, I rarely, I, I don't think I've ever ever in my entire time no matter you know the 300 plus episodes of it's called football the nearing 100 episodes of this I don't think I've ever put the blame almost singularly on a player for a loss before before this Warren Cavell was why TFC lost that game he got himself a four minute uh, yellow card ridiculously he was constantly getting beat goal side um, he constantly was inviting pressure upon uh, the TFC backline, putting you know more and more pressure on the middle. Which we have, you know, Haglin, who's the only natural center half that was playing. We have uh, Justin Morrow, uh, a fullback, have been forced into the middle because of injuries with the TFC's backline. And you constantly have these fullbacks. We have Ashton Morgan, who had a decent game. Um, Ashton Morgan was adequate, we'll say. I'm not going to say Ashton Morgan stood on his head and, or did anything fancy out there than, to make us so excited that Ashton Morgan has returned and is going to be an MLS All-Star, but he didn't do anything wrong either. But Warren Cravel, holy Christ, why is he playing? Like, I mean, I'm ranting right now, but this guy was just a bloody disaster this week and really yeah. was at least 90% of the problem. I remember a couple of years ago when Montreal had that little uh, hissy fit with Houston. Uh, that's where Montreal got their best chances was always against Cravel uh, in 2012 and 2013. And that's, what, two years ago. So, yeah, he must have been even worse now. Yeah. He was brought in last year um, under Nelson. And at the time when he was brought in, I thought they were looking at him as maybe a backup six, as a guy that could maybe fill a role as a defensive midfield uh, substitution late in the game, because that was something that TFC really didn't have a lot of last year. They still don't really have anyone that they can put in there as a stop, as a glue piece uh, to close a game out when they were really struggling to close games out, but they've never, ever used him there. From the time he's gotten here, something has made them think he's a fullback. Probably his ability to get forward, where if you do look at at some of his advanced numbers, he does do what he does well, which isn't much, is getting forward. Um, so but he needs to come back down after. That's the thing. Well, they just need to readjust this, and this yeah. is where people will start to talk about about um, Vanny, Greg Vanny, is is that he does insist upon an overlapping fullback system. Uh, if you have the horses to do this, if you have the the right fullbacks out there, it could be a very effective sort of. Uh, of way to, to, to perform the game. I mean, it's like, you know, look at, um, not to go back to, to Europe too much, but my European team, who I don't really want to talk about today, but... <laughs> I wonder um, why, I wonder why. Oh, you know, I it, it must be crystal hours. clear, right? Well, sure. <laughs> uh, what I was going to say is, like, you know, you go back 2012, 2013, even 2014, Zavaleta was an absolute key component to that team because of his ability to get forward and cause havoc from the fullback position. That overlapping modern fullback, who, of which he is one of the best examples of, um, Pablo Zavaleta I'm talking about, 
is not something that TFC has, right? So you can't play that system if you don't have guys that can play it. Morrow can do it to a certain extent, although he's more defensive in his mindset. Carval can't. He can't. Morgan, he can't really either, although he was a little better than that game. Anyway, long story short, this guy gets a red card, which we all said. We were joking about in the first half, the over-under and Cavell getting the red card, which I just responded hi to someone on Twitter. Like, it's a high probability. Sure enough, it happens. Puts him down to 10 men and kind of creates the situation that allows the winning goal. He, The card that gets him red carded is the free kick that allows the goal. Now, Bendik on that goal, I don't know what he's doing with that wall. He's trying to cheat and he gets caught is what it is. It's a disaster all around, and it's completely at the back. To their credit, they weren't making excuses after the game. No one was saying the referee was at fault. What they were saying is that we didn't defend well, and we need to defend better if we're going to win in this league, and that's that's the bottom line. Um, to take this back to like what I was originally saying up the top, Kevin, there is no great mystery to fixing TFC. They're not even that broken. They're just they need to defend. If they figure the defending out, they're going to be just fine. And part of that's going to be the injuries. But, you know, we're talking about now when you're looking at Caldwell and what we're hearing is troubling. He might be out for four or five more weeks, which could have been predicted. Like you're relying upon an old body that's broken down to, to be healthy. And that's hoping against hope. That's the definition of insanity, right? You're expecting what's what's happened in the past to not happen again. Yeah, absolutely. It's going to be interesting, though. But... Uh, it, you did see it coming a little bit. I think we did talk about on this show that how we thought TFC's defense was maybe their, not their weakness. Yeah, let's say that way. Yeah, their weakness. And it seems like the last couple of games, a couple of points slipped away because of that said defense. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, the rest of it, TFC is two-thirds good and one-third poor. It's just That's that the one-third has more impact on the game than you think. Well, yeah. I mean, they allowed three goals. Yeah. And I, the first thing I tweeted two minutes into that game uh, watching is that TFC is going to score need to score two or three goals to win this game because they are going to allow goals today, period. And it's what happened. They allowed three goals. They were up 2-1 in that game. They up 2-1 because they deserved it. They had the, the bulk of possession for long portions of the game. They produced most of the chances, I would say. Sheru's goal was nicely worked. It was nicely finished. Uh, Javinko got on the scoreboard. I mean, they, you know, yes, the Chicago could have... Uh, you know, the keeper there might have done a little bit more, but it was kind of one of those change-up shots that took a bit of a deflection and caught you kind of falling and unable yeah. to get up back up from it. It's, it happens. Anyone that's played goal at any level anywhere has, has had those kind of goals going on them, and they're it, harder to defend than you think. Yeah, that catches you off balance on your left foot. You have to switch your weight to your right. Yeah, you just can't do it in time. Yeah, yeah it, it's Story it of my a, life as a keeper. Yeah, it was a change-up goal. Um, to use a baseball terminology. So, you know, I think Javinko got back up in the play, and they, there was a lot of positives to the TFC game that are completely lost in the fact that they had one player have, like, one of the worst MLS performances I've ever seen, and collectively, the back of the line didn't do enough to overcome. Um, you know, what other things can we talk about this? Morgan, again, it's nice that Morgan's got a few few starts. He's at 98 career appearances now. Uh, he's one appearance away from becoming TFC's all-time appearance leader, which is kind of the most TFC thing, TFC thing ever that Ashton Morgan is one appearance away from becoming their all-time appearance leader. That it, basically a guy that is more or less – he started for a year, but he's more or less a career backup that's been around forever is going to become their all-time appearance leader. unless And he, no one has got 100 appearances in, MLS, in TFC history, and, and Ashton, if he keeps playing, if the injuries hold out, might get that chance. And at least that's something. We all <laughs> like Ashton. Ashton's a good kid. Oh, Kevin. Um, one and three on the road. It's the road trip. 
I would have wanted another point by now. I think that if you pulled me before the start of the year and said if they had four points after four road games, would you be okay with that? And I probably reluctantly would have said yes. Uh, Now they're at three. I'm not going to panic because they do have some points, but I do think that they do need to find another win on this road trip before it's over. And, um, you know, at this point. How long left of the BMO or uh, uh, rebuild, but uh, renovations? Uh, it's the first weekend in May. Okay. Uh, so so this, the road trip is seven games. So there's three more games left in the road trip. They gave them two bye weeks um, to try and reduce some of the pain of it. It was a nine-week road trip total with two bye weeks and factored in. So it is what it is. It's going to give them a long homestand. What it's doing, um, you know, they're not defying odds and, and getting themselves ahead of the game in this road trip. But what it, it's ultimately doing is putting more pressure on those home games in May. And I think that that's what it is we talk about uh, not being you know you can't let a gap develop mm-hmm. i don't think the rest of the league is going to the rest of the east is going to allow a gap to develop so i don't think they're going to get in trouble there i do think they'll find more points maybe three maybe four more points on this uh even if they if they don't three points is pretty bad out of that amount of time and they are going to be a bit near the bottom and they are going to need to make hay pretty quick but if they get one more win on this road trip Finish with six. No one is going to be excited with that, but they won't be gapped. And as long as they don't crap the bed at home too, then things will be fine. What makes TFC fans reluctant to to be at all optimistic or uh, what makes them lean towards pessimism is the fact that TFC has been crap at home for the last few years. They've been worse at home than on the road. And I will say this from a psychological perspective that if they let's say that they finish the road trip with three, maybe four points and then they come into that home opener and somehow lose it. BMO field is going to be booing them all booing them by the 70th minute. If they're losing that game, like there is no patience left in this city and they are going to be incredibly negative in the stands almost instantly with any type of non positive result. And that's, TFC's own making, but it does affect the, the, the psychology of things. Well, it's going to be interesting to see in the next couple of weeks. All right. And Montreal, of course, didn't lose this weekend. No, they are undefeated again in the bye week, which is a very tr- a trend that continues all the time. Every team I've seen in the bye week are always undefeated. All right. Uh, one more pause note. We'll end it with this. Uh, well, first off, I think it's positive that MLS did actually accommodate uh, Montreal CCL. They didn't do it with TFC a few years ago. They didn't do it with Salt Lake uh, back when they were in the final. Uh, the fact that they are changing their, their ways and accommodating teams is good. So we'll, we'll just say that and leave yeah, it at but, that. But let's face it. They only did it to Montreal because they did it to the Galaxy in 2012 and they don't have a choice but doing it for the teams after. All right, San Jose, uh, they did not score again this week. I know they're not a Canadian team, but uh, but it is relevant to a Canadian team because San Jose, for the first time in my memory, is the first MLS team to actually get far enough into a scoreless drought that we can start to talk about the possibility of them um, catching TFC. Colorado's close too, right? Well, that's, what did I say, San Jose? Yeah, I meant Colorado. I apologize. Yeah, I know Colorado. I don't know why I said San Jose. Colorado is, uh, has not scored in 600 minutes now. So TFC, for those that don't know, they went 823 minutes. So 800 and, or sorry, 824 minutes is the record. Uh, we are now 
224 minutes away from Colorado breaking that. The also uh, TFC went for five full games off the start of the 2007 season, and of course we all know 24 minutes into the fifth game or the sixth game before they scored their first goal, which is a record for the longest scoreless drought off the start of an MLS season. Colorado is a game and a bit away from um, touching that record now. So, so continue, Colorado. You're close to the record. Continue that way, and you'll put your name in the history books. Having watched every minute of the 824, I can I can empathize with how awful it must be uh, to be a Colorado Rapids supporter right now. There's other records too. Like if you look at their overall goal performances, they they are on pace. Well, they're obviously on pace. They're on pace for no goals right now, but. Uh, <laughs> But by and large, it looks like that might be in danger. Uh, they have gone winless in something like 17 straight games now, which is putting them in a real danger streak there as well. It's just a team that's that's in trouble in a lot of ways, and it's a, a, t- a market that has never really fully got the support it deserved, uh, it, it, which has hurt that market and made them less and less interested. You can understand from from perspective here in Toronto how that, that works hand in hand, right? So unfortunate for them but i think if you're a tfc fan you kind of want to get rid of that a24 so go notch colorado yeah and they never really recovered from their loss of Perea a couple of years ago too for to mastriani and it seems like they can't get their act together this year either well that's symbolic of, of their problems right that they basically another club another club that's not exactly known for its high spending came in and just made an offer to a guy that yeah i want to go back there because they're going to give me more resources and that's that's symbolic of it. And, and he had Colorado playing above their heads, too. So, you know, Colorado's got uh, Sam Cronin on that team. A lot of guys in Toronto like him. Yeah. He um, was good in San Jose, Cronin. Yeah, so there's there's some connection there, and you, you feel for them that, uh, yeah, I don't know if Colorado's going to be doing too much this year. They, they, might be, uh, they might be in danger of touching some of those all-time, all-time records for, for badness at any rate. <laughs> those Toronto records. Uh, well, no, Toronto doesn't have some, all of them, but they do have the scoreless records. You cannot, here's a funny story of it, and we'll end it with this. I watched every minute of, well, you know, obviously you might have went to the bathroom here and there, or gone and got a beer here and there, but that's exactly <laughs> that, that, Especially beers, especially beers. Yeah. So, and they scored in the third minute of a game against um, Columbus to break the streak. And because it was the third minute of a game, half of the stands were still getting beer. We're still in the bathroom. Bathroom. We're still getting when the guy when he scored the goal. So myself included did not see the goal that ended the 824 minutes after we like we we were walking. I was walking up the tunnel and I heard this like whoa and everyone and I went what what are you kidding me? <laughs> after all this time, I missed that freaking goal. Come on, it wasn't a very attractive goal. <laughs> it, was, it was like a scramble. A a scramble. It was a scramble a from like two goal. yards away, which is how Colorado will probably score. Yeah. Anyway, that's how they usually score. I think on that note, Kevin. <laughs> yeah, tonight CCL uh, TV Spa Sportsnet One Sportsnet World 10 p.m. and come and join me. Either look on my Twitter feed. I'll announce where I'll be. Le Treft or Frappe. I don't know where yet. And until next time on Out the Woodworks, well. Have a great Champions League tonight.